listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. In Kyle Adelman's book, One at a Time, he tells a story of preaching a uh, worship event inside of a prison. And it was something that they did as a church pretty regularly, but he went as the preacher to preach and they had a worship service for the prisoners. And, um, one of the, one of the guys that he had noticed actually while he was, he was worshiping and while the, while the sermon was going on was someone who's super interested, super like leaning forward, very, you could tell just like very expressive in worship. And, and this guy kind of made a beeline for Kyle after the message was over, after the service was completed. He came up to Kyle and he started telling him about his faith in Jesus and how he found Jesus there in the prison through a through an, a, an event much like the one that Kyle was preaching at. And then he, he told Kyle, he said, I want, to, I want to show you a picture. He pulled a picture out of his back pocket and he handed it to Kyle for Kyle to just kind of observe. It was a picture of him. He was standing in a driveway with a motorcycle next to him. He had a grease rag in his back pocket and a Bud Light in his left hand. And as he's, as he's, as he's looking at this picture, Kyle's like, this, this is you, isn't it? This is, this is where you used to live. Thinking it was just a sentimental picture that this guy carried around to remind him of his time before he ended up in the prison. And the guy goes on and he says, yeah, I want you, I want you to really look at that picture. I want you to, I want you to tell me what you notice in that picture. And Kyle's just not understanding kind of what he wants him to see. So he's looking and he's looking at all. And then he finally notices right before he hands the picture back to the man, he, he finally notices that in the background kind of blurred across the street was a steeple and a cross. And Kyle then kind of realized where this conversation was going. He handed the picture back to the man and he just instinctively said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You, you lived next to a church, didn't you? And the guy goes on to tell why he keeps that picture and said he lived at that house for seven years. And nearly every Sunday morning, he would sit in his driveway working on his, his um, motorcycle, drinking a beer. And he would see thousands, if not hundreds of thousands over the years of people come in park, get out with their button-down shirts and their nice dresses and their Bibles and go into the church to worship, which was a pretty quiet time, although you could probably hear some of the music from time to time. And then they'd come back out and they'd get out and the traffic jam would ensue. As a matter of fact, he said, uh, not not a single person in those seven years ever thought to stop and say hi, ever walked across the street, ever said anything to me about the church. Actually, the only, uh, the only word that he ever got anything from the church was when they would send him notes in his mailbox to tell him that his grass was too high and then he needed to cut it. And he, he stood there letting Kyle kind of stare down the picture a little bit more. And he asked Kyle the question. He said, why, why didn't someone just walk across the street? Why didn't someone just walk across the street? And Kyle, thinking that was a rhetorical question, just shook his head and looked at the ground. But the guy just stood there staring at him saying, why? And Kyle's response was, you were, you were different and, and they were scared. Or you were different and they didn't know how to approach you or you were different and they were, they had other things to do. And, and the prisoner looked at the ground and he said, that's just not right. Said after some time in those seven years, at some point he had gotten himself into a lot of trouble. And, and one night in a drunken rage, he had killed a man. 
And this is why he was in this prison. It found Jesus in prison. And he's like, I don't know if somebody would have stopped by and said hello or somebody would have invited me to church that I even would have gone. But not even a single person tried. It's stories like these that serve as our why. Over the past few weeks, we've painted a picture of what it looks like to be a church that adjusts the focus from strictly come and see that we have, we have something to show you. Everybody come into the building and we worship together and come and see from strictly that model to a go and tell model. And if you've not heard the last few sermons in the series, I'd encourage you to go back on YouTube or the podcast. I prefer the podcast because I like to listen to Wayne on two times speed. It is energizing. <laughs> so you can catch up pretty quick. He's already pretty quick, but you can take 30 and turn it into 15. It's, it's pretty entertaining. But I encourage you to go back. And the reason I ask you to do that is because those sermons are the why behind the how that we're about to dive into. Like, how do we make this happen? How do we pivot and make this, this thought, not strictly just come and see, but, but now to go and tell. We've, we've heard the why. We've been motivated by Corey and Wayne to raise the sales, to go and make disciples who make disciples, to get out of our comfort zones. And now we're going to start to talk today about the how. When you set out to do what Jesus did, you're met with an undeniable call to make disciples who make disciples. And as many people would think that, that, that we, we need to get out of the idea of church and go outside of the church and just forget about the church altogether and its antiquated history and all of that, that, that the church is what's holding us back from discipling. I believe, and I think the Bible confirms, that the church is the tool. It is a vital tool in God's plan to make this happen. We're reading in our college life AM class a couple weeks ago. We've been studying through the book of uh, the books of First and Second Thessalonians, and we we watch Paul go into these cities, and he he, he arrives in Thessalonica, where he finds uh, he preaches the gospel and finds just a few believers. And it says it says there that that he left. It says in the book of Acts, I believe it's chapter uh, sixteen, where it says he left Thessalonica uh, to a few leaders, a few leading men and women in the city. And so when Paul went into a city and he preached the gospel, he left pretty quickly. Most of the time he had to. He was, he was beaten out or chased out of the city. But when he left Thessalonica, he left them with this call, this undeniable call to make disciples. And then he moved on to Berea and, and the following cities. And what we see from the church at Thessalonica is this church would take this task so seriously that they would actually start to outpace Paul and his missionary journeys. Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He says, he says, we arrive in cities and we go to share the gospel and they, they raise their hand and go like, yeah, we've already heard this from the Thessalonians. We've already heard this from the, from the people who you told in the last city you were in. That is a go and tell model. They weren't content to just start a church, but they went and they told if the church is the hope of the world, the key to discipleship multiplication, it's a launch pad for followers of Jesus sharing the same goal to practice the ways of Jesus, to do what Jesus did, to change a neighborhood, to change a city, to change a county, to change a country and beyond. We're still left with the question, why didn't someone just walk across the street? Is it possible, as one of my Bible college professors used to wonder out loud, that we've gotten so good at going to church that we've lost the point of actually being the church? Is it possible that, that this gathering is more about rounding up the saved than it is about reaching the lost? 
Are we more focused on seating capacity than we are sending capacity? Are we more committed to basking in the hope and the glory that we have found in Jesus Christ instead of, or rather than, sharing it with the hopeless and the joyless around us? These are all valid questions, convicting questions. But this morning's not meant, this series is not meant to be a guilt trip. As the theologian slash Christian rapper would say, Lecrae, he says, it's not a guilt trip, it's a field trip. If we truly believe that Jesus changes everything for everyone, if we truly believe that the only way for them to to, to meet Jesus resides within these walls, that is a problem and 90% of our community will be left out. So let's go on a field trip. To to the places and the people where we tend to avoid, to the lost and to the broken, to the motorcycle mechanic. Church, let's walk across the street. Let's go on a field trip. A couple of weeks ago, Wayne shared this graphic with us. We call it the pathway of Jesus. And fittingly, this model has also been called uh, the four fields. Get it? We're going on a field trip through the four fields, all right? Farmers got it. Okay. This is, this, is, this is what we call the pathway of Jesus. Kind of the, the, the idea above all of this is that we will follow in the footsteps of Jesus, going to the lost and the broken, prayerfully engaging this pathway. First step is we enter. We will enter the harvest field. We're going to spend some more time on that today. But, but, but the idea is that we go from we will enter to I will enter. I take this as a personal discipleship goal of myself. I will enter the harvest field. Secondly, I will share the gospel. I will share the gospel. Next, I will disciple. I will, I will make disciple makers. So not only am I content with being a disciple and a follower of Jesus, but I will make disciples. I will replicate myself. I will multiply. Not just addition of numbers, but multiplication of followers of Jesus. Next, we will help start Acts 2 churches, churches that are committed to the things the early church was committed to, groups of people meeting together, studying the Bible, making more disciples, and then they will enter as well. And all along this process, we're producing leaders that can enter any one of these fields at any time. Each week, for the next five weeks, we're going to look at each part of this graphic. And, and today, we're going, to, we're going to start with enter. What does it look like to enter the harvest field? And I hope you look as stylish as this guy in his hat when you do it. If you're going in a harvest field, you got to have a hat, like a Johnny Appleseed hat, right? So I can't tell if that's a, like a halo or a hat, but this is the guy, right? This is going to be us, okay? To do that, we need to talk about entering in a couple different ways. I want to talk about it in a couple different ways. First, I want to talk about the attitude that it takes to enter into the harvest field. Uh, the attitude that Jesus calls us into the lost and the broken, to the lost and broken. I want to look at the attitude, and then I want to look at the location. There's a big difference between attitude and location. I'm going to be, um, I'm going to be leaving church next week to go um, preach or minister at one of the um, a wedding of our college students. We've been anticipating this for quite some time. We're super excited about it. But I started thinking about this idea of attitude and location. And if I go to this wedding after church next week with the right attitude, but I go to the wrong location, (laughs) we got a problem, right? They might not be getting married that day. I mean, they'll figure it out without me. That's fine. Somebody can say my lines, but, but like, like that would be a problem. Now on the flip side, if I go to the right location with the wrong attitude, that's an even bigger problem. And I'm probably not getting paid to do that wedding, right? 
Like I go in just asking, you know, like with my arms crossed and expecting everybody to serve me, all that sort of stuff. That day's not about me. It's about that couple. So I need to go not only with the right attitude, but also with the right location. When we enter into the harvest field, when we enter the places where the lost and the broken and the hopeless are, we need to go first with the right attitude. And then we're going to talk about how we go to the right locations. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10 this morning. And while you're getting there, I'll go ahead and have you stand. Go have you stand. We're going to read together these first couple verses. Jesus here gives us a clear picture of how the attitude of how we are to enter in to the harvest field. You can read along. It's up here at the screen. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. This scripture comes right after one that Wayne preached on a couple weeks ago, where Jesus saw the crowds, had compassion on them, and then he started preaching from town to town. Now he's sending out his followers. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Amen. You may have a seat. This is not the first time that Jesus has given this message. This is not the first time that Jesus has sent people out. Yes, it's true. Preachers repeat their messages. You were like, I knew it, right? But Jesus here, uh, he has also in Luke chapter 9, we see that he does this with his 12 disciples. It's detailed even more so in Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus takes the 12 disciples that have been following him most closely. He had other followers, but these were the ones he was investing in as his disciples. And he sent them out with almost the exact same instructions we're going to see him give the 72 And so we see him do that. Jesus here, he starts to instruct them on attitude. You're going into the harvest field. So this posture and spirit is what you need to take along with you. There are six things that I've identified in here that, that he, that he asked them to be, and we're going to pair them up as attitudes that Jesus tells his followers to go with. The first two are this. Jesus tells him to go vulnerable and dependent. Jesus says that his, his workers need to go into the harvest field, to the lost and broken places, vulnerable and dependent. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, now go. That's emphatic. That's, that's, a, that's a command. Now go. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, a travel bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Seems pretty rude for Jesus to say, don't talk to anybody on your way. Like, we'd be hospitable. Well, that actually comes from a, um, from a little bit of the, the Jewish culture in the East of when you were along the way, there's like all of these rituals. If you met someone along the road, you had to, all of these things in these different ways. You had, you know, like secret handshakes and bowing and all this sort of stuff. And Jesus is like, go. <laughs> Don't, don't stop along the way and do this. Don't talk to people because then you're in this whole rigmarole of like having to like, you know, the small talk stuff. You guys know what this is like, right? You know what it's like. So Jesus is saying, don't do any of that stuff. You have a mission. Go and do it. Go vulnerable, independent. And so he says, um, he says, I'm sending you out. Jesus is not asking his followers to, to crusade through these towns and Bible thump through these towns. He's not asking them to fight fire with fire. Look at what he does when he sends, when he sends the 12 in Matthew, chapter, in Matthew chapter 10. He says, you're going out of sheep among wolves. But then he goes on to even detail. You will face persecution. People will hate you because of me. The message that you're taking is not always accepted widely. And so Jesus is not asking them to go through these towns and force people into belief. No, he sends them in meekness. He says, go vulnerably. 
I'm sending you like sheep among wolves. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The voice translation of the Bible adds this paraphrase. I love the way that it says this. It says in verse 3, I'm sending you out armed with vulnerability. What are you taking to protect yourself? Vulnerability. That's not very convincing, is it? Like lambs into a pack of wolves. I love that. Well, what weapon are you taking? Vulnerability, meekness, love for others, grace, the fruits of the Spirit. We go broken because we know what it is to be broken. We go lost because we know what it is to wander and feel lost. We, we go to the hurting because we know what it is to feel hurt. We go vulnerable, but it's not just vulnerable and alone. It's vulnerable and, and dependent. We go dependent. Dependent on God's provision. Jesus says, don't take extra sandals. Don't take your fat wallet. Don't take an extra pair of shoes. Don't take extra clothes. Don't take these things along with you so that you would depend on yourself. Jesus is asking his followers to depend only on God. I remember hearing stories of missionaries who, when preparing to go into the field, would have all of their teeth pulled. They would go to the dentist and they'd have every single tooth that could possibly cause a problem so, so they wouldn't have a need for, for, for modern medicine. They wouldn't have a need for, um, you know, for, uh, to, to be pulled off of the field because they had an infection or something. They have every single one of their teeth pulled so that they could go unhindered. And talking a little funny, maybe. But there's another story I've heard of a missionary organization that would require their missionaries to pack all of their belongings that they were taking with them in a wooden coffin. And that was their suitcase. To know that the only trip back from the mission field was, was when their, their work was truly done. And these are very extreme examples of commitment to enter the field. And, and, and we can look and go that extreme and we can think about that sort of stuff. And, you know, I, I started thinking about some of this. Like, what if I was in that, that field of 72? And Jesus is like, all right, you're going to go. The first thing that would have popped into my mind is all of the stuff I needed to, to prepare to take with me. Who did I need to let know that I was going to be gone? Uh, me and a couple of my friends are actually preparing for uh, a three-night, three-day kayaking camping trip um, in a couple weeks on the current river. And yeah, it's getting cold in the evening. So like my packing list just keeps growing and growing, right? So we're, we're preparing for this, for this. And I've got, I've got a list, a literal list in my garage of all the things that I need to either buy or get ready for. So like if Jesus walked up to me today, he's like, all right, I want you to go to this place. I'm like, I got my bug out bag. Like I'm ready. Like I've got my ramen noodles. Okay. Like I've got the stuff I need. I'm going to grab this. I've got my extra sandals. I've got, I've got the things that I need and I start packing. So if Jesus asked me, I've got the extra batteries. I've got the charged phone. I've got, you know, I can pull some money out of savings, all of these sort of things. But I start asking myself these questions. Do you think any of the disciples were like, Whoa, what do I need to prepare before I just jaunt off into these vulnerable places? Are my emergency contacts up to date? Uh, did I, is my backpack big enough? Is my sleeping bag warm enough? Did I pack enough snacks? M- most importantly, is there coffee in the, in the mission field? Right? And if it is coffee, is it like real coffee or like hipster coffee? Or is it like candy coffee? Like I need to know the important things, right? I'm going to get my list to be like, what am I going into? I'd imagine that my mind would start racing with that. All the while, Jesus is just looking at me going, pull out your teeth pack your coffin and go. (laughs) I don't know if a coffin would float down the current river. I'm not really sure, but we're not going to try it. God takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. 
He's going to take care of you. Jesus is not trying to get his followers to win some sort of survivor challenge with you get five, you know, five of your favorite things and you can go and see how long you can last. No, he's asking us to go armed with humble vulnerability and utter dependence on him who provides all things. Next, the next two attitudes that Jesus tells us to enter the field with are peaceful and patient. Peaceful and patient. Look at what verse five says. It says, whenever you enter, whenever, whatever house you enter, first say peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house when you enter any town and they welcome you. Eat the things that are set before you. Now I've, I've heard this before, but it was mostly like telling me as I was going on mission trips, eat the things set before you, right? Like it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how it smells. It doesn't matter if you forgot to bring the Chick-fil-A sauce you packed in your bag. I did that. Um, Chick-fil-A sauce and goat. It's just still kind of weird, but, uh, but like eat what is set before you. Jesus is, is, is giving his disciples these attitudes of when you go into a town, when you go to the lost, when you go to the people who are needing the love of Jesus, go in with patience, go in peaceful. Jesus urges his, his followers to look for what the Bible calls a person of peace. Uh, maybe your Bible says a son of peace, but someone who is willing to hear, someone who has an open ear, someone who has an open mind. Chris Galanos in his book, Mega Church to Multiplication, describes a person of peace like this. He says, a person of peace is the receptive person whom God has prepared to be the bridge for the gospel to travel over into that community. The peaceful person, someone who can bridge that gap, someone who's welcoming, hospitable, open, this is Jesus' model because he's not interested in just, in just reaching one aggressive person with the gospel, right? You know, these are the, these are the things that we, that we tend to see in the movies that get, you know, uh, the theatrical treatment where it's like the one college freshman who goes against his aggressive atheist, you know, professor. And he's just like, all right, it's this battle in front of the class, right? And I'm sure these David versus Goliath type of things happen. But far more often... Christ is coming to the lost a little less theatrical and a lot more relational. We're told to look for a person of peace because Jesus is not just interested in reaching the one aggressive atheist. He's he's interested in reaching a whole community, the whole neighborhood, the whole classroom. Galanos adds this. He says, the emphasis is always on bringing a group of people together rather than focusing on an individual. This was Jesus' pattern. He sends his disciples into these towns, into these homes, not to just win the one aggressive uh, false teacher, not to just win the one aggressive Pharisee, not to just win the one aggressive uh, agnostic atheist, but to win the whole community. This is what Paul did. We see in the book of Acts chapter 17, when Paul marches into Athens, he doesn't march into the Parthenon and demand an audience at the temple of Athena and start debating all the high priests and such. No, he goes to a place that was called the Areopagus Hill or Mars Hill to meet with what was essentially Athens Free Thinkers Club. And they would listen to all kinds of ideas around this rock. They would, everybody would sit around and just share ideas left and right. And Paul's like, That's, there's, there's peace here. There's an opportunity. There's an open door. And so he would preach the gospel to, this, to these people of peace. And it had to be a bit refreshing for Paul because most of the times when he preached the gospel, he got things thrown at him. 
But here he preaches the gospel, and when he mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they all go, whoa, 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 they stop him. And he's used to being stopped at that point, but not in this way. What do they say to Paul when, he, when they stop him? They say, we want to hear more about this. Will you come back and teach us more about this? Paul has found people of peace in Athens. Paul was asked to come back for more. This is the pattern that Jesus set, not only to be peaceful, but also to be patient. Notice Jesus rushes his disciples into the harvest field. Don't wait. Go now. Don't pack this. Don't pack that. Don't take extra stuff. He rushes them into the harvest field, but then he gives them patience, urges them to have patience while they're there. You could say it this way. We're in a rush to enter, but we're not in a rush to leave. We get there as quickly as we can, but we stay as long as we're welcome. Don't treat people as projects or assignments that are due at midnight, but truly take time to listen, to love, to serve, to be with people. Because if you treat people like a, like a part of a checklist, they're going to know, they're going to see that you're manipulating them and that you just want them to believe. They're going to see that, but do we truly love, do we truly love people? Are we willing to go the patient extra mile to see people through to discipleship? One of the greatest inventions in maybe the last 100 years of history is the Instant Pot. Okay? I'll stand on it. I'll say it. Like, it is amazing. The Instant Pot, I'm a a person that doesn't show up on time for, like, anything. And dinner was one of those things for me, right? I would be like, I would get home. I'd be like, we've got 20 minutes to make dinner. Looks like we're having spaghetti again, right? Because that's about all I could do. That's about, that was my thing. But when we got an instant pot, the world of possibilities opened to me. I mean, we're talking soups, chili, all of this sort. If you don't know what an instant pot is, let me share with you the gospel of the instant pot, okay? Whatever recipe it is that you're mad that takes way too long, the instant pot solves that problem. Well, almost any recipe, okay? There was one mishap. There was one time I was, when we got this instant pot, I was putting everything. I was reading things online. I was like, you mean I can make this in 20 minutes? Like I can stay at work a little bit longer and I can get home and make this. Boom. It was like, you know how long it takes to cook frozen broccoli in an instant pot? It doesn't take any time. You just have to turn it on and turn it off. And that's it. Like it doesn't even, it's so fast. And it was like, wow, broccoli. Alan. Okay. Get a microwave already. But there was one mishap. I was, I was reading online and I found this recipe for baby back ribs. You guys did it too, didn't you? Um, in the Instant Pot. And now listen, I have a smoker. I have a, a pellet smoker that I love. I have, a, I have a grill that I can cook ribs on and I have before. I feel like it's, it's delicious. I love ribs. Like I have these things, but I'm also lazy. So I'm like, ribs in 30 minutes? Let's go. Like, okay. So I followed the recipe. I made the ribs. We ate the ribs. But if I'm honest, and I like to be honest when I'm up here, just so you know. Um, um, the Instant Pot didn't really revolutionize every area of cooking, specifically the barbecue area. Like, like truly, if it could have, that would have been great. No better time to be alive. You know, like baby back ribs in 30 minutes. That's amazing. But like many of you know where this story is going. I think the Instant Pot may have set barbecue back a few hundred years. <laughs> it's like, remember when we had fire and we could just use that instead? Like, uh, if you ask anyone who knows anything about barbecue, there's a refrain that they will repeat to you over and over and over again. And you've probably heard it. You could probably recite it for me, but I'll start it and you can finish it. Low and slow. And you got to say it like that too. Low 
and slow. And there are other ways to cook meat over a fire, but every single time that I take the time and have the patience to marinate and to brine and to low and slow cook, and I let something cook for, you know, 16 hours over just a little bit of smoke, it's so much better. Now, you could technically call what came out of that Instant Pot ribs. You could still call it ribs, technically. But there's such a better way. The work of discipleship is not an Instant Pot recipe. There's such a better way. There's such a better way. Instant pot discipleship is actually an oxymoron. Eugene Peterson defined discipleship as a long obedience in the same direction, low and slow. There's a reason that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. When we try to make instant believers or we try to microwave or mass produce the idea of discipleship or evangelism, we end up with converts, not disciples. We end up with crusades, not revivals. You could technically call those that I pulled out of the instant pot ribs, but they were not good ribs. Jesus is not calling us to merely convert people, but to vulnerably, dependently, peacefully, and most importantly, maybe patiently make disciples. Let discipleship flourish. The last two attitudes that we see Jesus send his disciples into the harvest field with are boldness and intentionality. Boldness and intentionality. Look at verse 9. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near. When you enter into a town and they don't welcome you, go into the streets and say, we are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain. The kingdom of God has come near. It's the same message to the peace, to those who are peaceful. But to those who are hostile, the kingdom of God has come near to you. I tell you on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Boldness and intentionality. Jesus gives his his disciples power and authority. Power and authority to heal and to announce the coming of God's kingdom. Jesus has given them power and words. Power and something to say. He doesn't just send them and go, just be nice to everybody. And everyone will be like, why are you being so nice to me? And you're just like... Come and find out. You know, like that's It's not come and see. But to go and tell. It's important to tell. There was this quote when I was in college that kind of made its rounds that everybody got really pumped about. It was attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Maybe you've heard it before, but it was preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. It's a great little line. It's a great little memorable thing. Like it's something to know that like your life is, you know, some, you may have heard it said like the Bible, you're the only Bible that somebody might read today. That sort of a mentality. It's a great little thing to remember, to know that we are living lives that, that will glorify God and others will see good works and glorify God. But a couple things, one, we're not even really sure if St. Francis actually said it. We're not even sure he said it. Now, he, he lived in such a way and said other things with that, but it's been attributed to him. Um, but we're not really sure if he said it. But we do know who didn't say it. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus didn't. In fact, Jesus says the opposite here. If you were to mess the quote around just a little bit, what Jesus would have said was, preach the gospel at all times. It's necessary. Use words. There comes a time in boldness to proclaim the kingdom of God. It's good news. We shouldn't be ashamed to preach the good news. Speak boldly, expect miracles, and when they happen, call it what it is, the kingdom of heaven on earth. 
We go with boldness, but it's not just boldness, but intentionality. Notice that Jesus tells them not only when to go into a home and stay, but when to leave as quickly as you possibly can. Jesus says, when you're not welcome, shake the dust off your sandals. If you're not welcome in a home, don't force yourself in. That's not the pathway of Jesus. That's not, that's not a, a person of peace. He won't force anyone to follow him, but he invites everyone to follow him. So the invitation is there, but he's not going to force it on anyone. I was reading a story just this week, an author and, um, and writer, those are the same thing, pastor and writer, sorry. <laughs> pastor and writer A.J. Swoboda tells a story of a young lady that he counseled. She grew up in an extremely strict, religious, fundamental family, and she describes her parents so strict that there was zero boundaries in her household. And that at any time, no matter what she was doing, homework, changing, no matter what it was, that either one of her parents could barge into her room, just open up her door and be like, are you, what are you doing in here? It gave her a, a sense of, of trauma that, that carried with her on to her college days. She goes off to college in Portland and starts to uh, hear things about other people who were raised this way and just kind of walks away from her, her Christian faith and this, this story kind of happens when she's kind of coming back to faith and she's, she's, she's talking with AJ and talking with, you know, what, what is Jesus, what is Jesus like? Because the Jesus, like this, this no boundaries, this trauma, this like being scared of someone barging in on you at every second. Like, that's what I think religion is. That's what I think it is to be a Christian. Cause that's what my parents were. And as she's reading through the Bible, she gets to the verse where it says that Jesus stands at the door and knocks he stands at the door and knocks and awaits for someone to, to, to let him in. And when she read that verse, her whole outlook on what Jesus has come to do changed. Jesus didn't come to barge into your room and see if you were getting into any trouble. Jesus didn't come to force his way into your life. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The weight that she carried thinking that Jesus was going to barge into her life and pry past her boundaries. All of that melted. She learned what Jesus was teaching his disciples here. Coming to Jesus is not an invasion, but an invitation. These are the attitudes we enter with. We don't go through and force it on anyone. We find people of peace. We're patient. We're bold and intentional on why we go and where we go. This is our posture. But now what about location? What about location? We have an opportunity in uh, some of the upcoming trainings. You heard it mentioned in, um, in Next Steps that next week we actually have a disciple-making training. And we're going to have some more of these trainings throughout. And the sermons will continue to give us more of the how of this. But I'd highly recommend you to come to these. And then in sermons coming, we're going to talk about what it looks like uh, with your current location. To just look around you, the people who, uh, the people who are closest to you, your family, your friends, your coworkers, something we're calling the live work playlist. That's, that's something we want to keep in mind all the time. But this morning for, for our times, I want to focus our attention on some locations that you may not have considered, that you may not, may not have thought of that Jesus is calling you to enter. Remember what Jesus is not telling the disciples. Hey, go back to your family and friends and see if they're interested in this message. No, he's sending them into the towns. He's sending them into the places where he is preparing to go. Chris Galanos and his church in Lubbock, Texas, Experience Life Church in Lubbock, Texas, they identified four characteristics of people who are in the most need of their community for the love of Christ. Now, he didn't make up these categories. They found them in the Bible, which is a good place to start, really good place to start. Uh, he, he didn't make them up, but they were, they were taken from Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus says, anything that you've done for the least of these categories, for the least of these people, 
you've done it for me also. Let's just actually actually look at the scripture there, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 through 36. This comes from the voice translation of the Bible. You shall be richly rewarded. For when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was alone as a stranger, you welcomed me into your homes and into your lives. I was naked and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick and you tended to my needs. I was in prison and you comforted me. Chris and his staff team put together an acronym. I love acronyms, especially when they're funny. Um, To describe places and people that Jesus addressed right here. They call it Pipsy. Pipsy. This is what a guy from Lubbock, Texas would call uh, Pepsi. Okay? Pipsy. Like if you ask somebody, you want, a, you want a Pepsi? They're like, I'll have a Pepsi. Right? I'm just kidding. They don't drink Pepsi in Texas. They drink Mountain. Only, only Dr. Pepper. Right? Um, Pipsy. That's a way to remember it. Pipsy. What does Pipsy stand for? Next slide. Pipsy stands for the poor, international, prisoner, and sick. Jesus went on to shape, uh, this this church in Texas went on to shape their whole outreach and go and tell model about finding the the poor, the international, the prisoner, the sick in their community. They found the most fruit and openness and spiritual conversations and serving people and praying for people and starting groups in these categories of people. They were the places where the most of the churches in their city had moved out of or abandoned or avoided altogether. The place where most people avoided This was their motorcycle mechanic standing across the street. Jesus sends his disciples to the poor. This church in Texas identified the poorest parts of their cities. They would go into Walmart or Kmart or Target. Actually, they wouldn't go into Target because you're only poor when you come out of Target, right? But just just kidding. they would find these places in their city and they go, this is the place where everyone has abandoned. This is where the houses are falling apart. This is where, this is where nobody wants to go. That's where we're going to go. And they would just extend the invitation. They connected to schools in their area. They asked guidance counselors and school staff if there was any to help them identify families in need or faculty that might have needs. They found ways to serve the poor. They showed up in neighborhoods. They just offered to pray for people. And they found most of the time when people are desperate, when people are searching, when people are longing for hope, and you ask them to pray for them, it's an emphatic yes. Working alongside and serving the poorest of their community, it changes their whole, it changed their whole church's perspective on what the harvest field looked like. Church, will we walk across the street and will we seek out the poor? Jesus calls his disciples to internationals. In most of your Bibles, the word there used that I'm saying international is stranger. It's the Greek word xenos. Xenos, meaning foreigner, migrant, refugee, immigrant. Of all of these words that describe an international that is in a foreign land. Xenos is actually where we get our word for xenophobia, to be afraid of these people, to be afraid of someone who is foreign. In that city, in this city, with multiple college campuses, Students come from all over the world to study here in Springfield, Missouri. Yet, isn't it heartbreaking that 90% of the international students that study abroad never see the inside of an American home? I was chatting with someone just this last week who, through her job, um, had an opportunity to, to meet some internationals, a couple international couples. She learned that they're waiting on their immigration paperwork to be processed. Um, they're, they're unable to legally work. 
They have found some odd jobs here and there, but as, it, as the, the weather is starting to cool off, some of those outside jobs are starting to dry up. They're waiting, and they have at least a six-month wait. And as she was there, she, she noticed other families, many other families kind of coming in and out of this same household, all living together from different nations and different countries. We often see missions as, as going to the nations. The church sends out people into the nations. Well, the nations are also coming to our community. But our fear and our pride sometimes keeps us from walking across the street. Church, will we walk across the street and send out and seek out the internationals? Jesus calls his disciples to the prisoner, to the prisoner. Galano says that out of the 10 churches that they started in the first 10 years of their church history, three of them were inside of jails. They called them freedom campuses. As he says, you might imagine prisoners often at a low point have a deep hunger for spiritual things. Prison ministry is a powerful ministry. One of the largest ministries serving Springfield's poor and darkest, the darkest parts of Springfield today is led by a man who was saved in a prison ministry here in Missouri. Jesus is calling us to disciple prisoners. Church, will we walk across the street and seek them out? Jesus is calling his disciples to the sick. David Garrison, who writes about church planning movements, observed that many, many people who first come to know Jesus, that they first come to know him as healer, and then they come to know him later as savior. Springfield is home to two of the largest hospitals by bed size in the state. I think in the top 10, Mercy and Cox rank in the top with the number of beds, the number of people that they can house. I tend to drive by those places and I only think about the traffic, Right? And the sirens, it's loud, it's noisy. I try to avoid those parts of town or the hundreds of checkups and yearly screenings that I've done in those places. When I go there, I'm not usually in an evangelistic mindset. I'm like, get in, get out. I don't want to be here. But as a disciple maker, do you know what Jesus wants me to see? Hurting people. Hordes of anxious waiting rooms, burnout nurses, hopeless situations. People who need hope and love. Jesus is calling us to the sick. Church, will we walk across the street and seek out the sick of our community? And so maybe as we were going through some of these, one of them pulled on your heartstrings. Maybe there's something for you. Here's a challenge for you this week. Get a map, a real map, a Google map, or whatever map you use. Find a map. Uh, identify where you think the people that, that, that really tugged at you. Maybe for you it was like, oh, that's definitely not the one. I think that's the one for you. Find on the map of our community, of your community, where, these, where you think these people are. One thing is true, like we can, we can second guess ourselves. Like, I don't know if Jesus really wants me to go there, that sort of stuff. Jesus tells his disciples, go, and he's sending them to the places that he intends on going. There is not a mission field, there is not a harvest field that you will walk into that Jesus is not preparing to do something miraculous in. So where is it? Is it the poor Where are those parts of town? Is it the international? Is it the sick? Draw a circle around your new field. Hospitals, apartment complexes, near the campus of Missouri State, the bus stop, the homeless shelters. Identify the field. And here's the hard part. Here's the hardest part of it all. We can identify. We can draw graphs. We can draw hearts. We can draw fields. We can do all of that sort of stuff. We can sit and we can talk about it. Here's the hard part. Enter it. Maybe that just looks like taking your car at some point this week and going and parking in the parking lot of the Greene County Jail and just praying for those prisoners. 
or going to the places of town where you wouldn't necessarily find yourself on a day-to-day, having lunch in a different part of town, going somewhere and just praying, offering to pray for someone, just take a step into the mission field. Armed with vulnerability and dependence, drive to the parking lots. As an ambassador of peace and patience, walk the halls of the hospital and pray. With boldness and intentionality, church, will you walk across the street? Will we enter the harvest field? As a, as a moment of decision point this morning, we have that opportunity to, to be trained next week by some, by some professionals, I guess you could say, some disciple makers, some people who, who have done this before, seen this, this movement take shape in churches. We have an opportunity to learn more about what this looks like. That's next week, 2.30, right here at the church. But also for you this morning, I, I would say if, if you're convicted by this, if you're pulled towards something and you need some help connecting, you need some ideas of where to go, or, or maybe, maybe one of these categories just described you. And you wound up here this morning and you're, you're thankful that God has spoken to you this morning. I would love to talk and pray with you this morning. We have staff outside the decision point door after Corey has us stand and sing together. The church, will we walk across the street? Will we love those that our community finds unlovable? Will we go to the lost and to the broken? Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.